How you doing? It's uh, great to be back with you uh, for a second time. A few years ago, I was at a routine dental appointment, and if you know uh, anything about the dentist, it's not always routine, but just doing a, uh, a cleaning, and my dentist informed me that I had a cavity and that I needed to set up another appointment to come and get it filled. And so afterwards, I went to the receptionist, and the receptionist asked me, what time of day do you want to come in to get this filled? And, and I really disliked the dentist. I mean, I really disliked the dentist. And so I, I, I devised a strategy that I felt comfortable with, and my strategy was this, that I'm going to come as early in the morning as possible. Maybe you have this strategy. And in the hopes that maybe by the time it was over, I would just kind of wake up. And so I said, how early uh, will you open? And she told me, and I said, can I get any earlier? You know, we're kind of going back and forth. And uh, she agrees to open up pretty early for me. And so that morning came, and when I woke up, I, I was uh, helped a little bit because it was pouring rain outside. And when I wake up and it's raining, I feel extra groggy. And so, I mean, it was raining cats and dogs. I made my way to the dental office, and I walked right in. No one was there, but I could hear them setting up in the back. I sat down in the waiting room, and for about 15 minutes, I just heard the pounding on the roof of the rain. And I, I literally, no joke, I did do the Lord. Uh, if, you would, if you would please cut the power out of this place, I would be so happy. And uh, it didn't happen, but, but the rain, it was just really powerful. And they finally called me to the back, and they numbed me, and the dentist began to work. And a few minutes into the procedure, the dentist slipped or did something to where I didn't feel it, but my head, my head got jerked forward. And again, I couldn't feel it, but I'm already on edge, and I'm already questioning everything. And then the dentist proceeds to very calmly, he says, Janet, and I hear a woman in the background, I hear Janet say yes, and he says, my roof is open and it's raining outside, uh, would you help me with that? And she said, yeah, sure. And, and my first thought was, this dude's car is going to be soaked. It has been raining for so long and I've been here and he hasn't gone out in 45 minutes and uh, wait, hold on a second. Why is he just now realizing his roof is open? And it's been raining all morning. And it was at that point that he said, Janet, it is raining really, really hard. And my roof is open. Can you please help me with that? And it's at that point that I realized his roof wasn't open. My roof was open. And it wasn't rain he's talking about. And my man's talking about blood, and it's in my mouth. And what the heck is Janet doing? I'm like, I'm dying here. Please, you know, you have to think. I'm really nervous about this whole deal. And finally, Janet finishes her coffee or newspaper or whatever, and she comes with some concoction, and they, they solve the problem, but they never tell me about it. They never mention anything about my roof being open and, and the blood, though I did have uh, quite a nice uh, cut in my gums. But afterwards, I found that out. But here's, the, here's what happened. The rest of that dental visit was absolute torture because my dentist and my dental assistant stood over me and they proceeded to have a conversation. And after the whole my roof is open code language thing, everything they said, I was trying to read into it. And so I remember she said, yeah, oh, I had a terrible weekend. And I'm like, is that my teeth? Uh, you know, and literally she said, we burned on the grill. And I'm like, how, how are they burned? What does burn mean? You know, and it was, it was torture. So here's the point, that when people speak code language, 
we, we are quick to become suspicious of them, and it often moves into not trusting them because we think they're intentionally trying to conceal something from us. Well, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? If you were here last week, you know that, that we're doing a series on the parables of Jesus, and a parable is, in essence, a story that is code language. Jesus says one thing, but there is this other hidden meaning behind it. The fact that Jesus speaks in parables... Should we be suspicious of him? Should we tend to not trust him? Well, the answer is no. We can trust Jesus. And here's just one reason. One reason is that my dentist intentionally used code language to conceal something from me. But Jesus uses parables. He uses code language not to conceal, but because he wants to reveal truth to us. He wants you to know about him. He wants you to know about how he works in this world. And one evidence of that is that in Matthew 13, where we're going back to this morning, Jesus uses seven different pictures, seven different parables. People who want to conceal don't rattle off seven different pictures. I'm sure you're familiar with the game, the classic game Pictionary. Pictionary, you, you read on this card that you're supposed to communicate something to a group of people. And imagine somebody in Pictionary doing drawing after drawing after drawing and covering every square inch of the pad in order for you to desperately get it. Well, I want you to picture Jesus that way. Maybe not the desperation, but his desire is that we would know him. Why is that a big deal? That's a big deal because if we're honest with ourselves, you don't know God, and I don't know God like I want to know God. And you don't know the way God works and I don't know the way God works like we want to. And so it can seem at times like maybe God doesn't want me to. And I want to say that's false. God wants you to know him. He wants to reveal himself to you. And this morning he wants to reveal uh, something very uh, critical and crucial about how the kingdom of God works in this world. Before we go to Matthew 13, I want to try to help you feel a little bit of the tension that was in the moment that Jesus spoke to in Matthew 13. Matthew, one of his primary themes of the gospel is that Matthew wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that say that a king is going to come to save his people. That is, a Messiah king is going to come. Matthew wants you to know that. And as you read through Matthew with that lens, you see he's got that lens on. And he's wanting you to see that Jesus is fulfilling prophecies of a king who's come to save. Well, the problem was that while there were some things that Jesus said and did that matched up with a king coming to save, there was also this growing list of things that Jesus was doing and saying that didn't match the way that they thought a king would come on earth. They were looking for Jesus to come in full authority, full power, full influence. And Jesus wanted to tell them, hey, that's for my coming the second time. This time, my kingdom on earth is a little different. You see, what happened was opposition and rejection was happening. And the disciples were expecting the king to deal with it. And he wasn't dealing with it like a king would. And not only that, but the king started talking about that he was going to suffer and he was going to die. And, and, and if you put yourself in the disciples' shoes, your king is finally here, and he's talking about dying? 
suffering, there is this tension. Is he really the king? And what Jesus does in Matthew 13 is he says, I'm going to give you seven paradigm-shifting parables to help you understand the way the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is going to operate on the earth in this time. So that we're very clear. In the first one, you looked at last week, the parable of the uh, sower and the seed. And, and in it, one of the highlight, the points, is that there will be opposition and there will be, there will be rejection. And Jesus wants you to know he's still the king. He's still the king. And, and the, sec- the question that arises is, well, well, what do we do with those who reject the king, Jesus? Do we take them out? And Jesus tells the second parable, the parable of the weeds, where there are those who follow the king and those who reject the king. And Jesus says, you're not to eliminate them. That's not your job. You're both going to grow up, and one day, in the final day, I'm going to deal with them. So here's the setup. Here's the tension. That you're already feeling, if you're a follower of Christ, you're feeling like you thought the king was going to come in power and influence and authority, and actually he says he's here, but the opposite seems to be happening. The power, influence, and authority of those who are rejecting him seems to be growing. And now he's telling us that the opposition and rejection, it's not going away anytime soon. So if you're a disciple in Matthew 13, you're feeling like the hurricane just came ashore and you barely survived the the storm surge. And now the weatherman says, by the way, it's going to rain for the next 48 hours straight. You're wanting to say, Jesus, are we going to make it? Is the kingdom of God going to make it if you're not going to deal with the opposition and rejection, but but we're going to have to exist together? Are we really going to make it? And that's when Jesus speaks these two beautiful parables of promise. There are promises for them, and there are promises for you and I to take hold of. I, I view these promises, these parables, like wasabi. A little bit goes a long way, right? Or two little sticks of dynamite, literally. Like in my Bible, in Matthew, in 1344 is another. I just, I just put spiritual wasabi, baby. I mean, these things are so rich, but they're meant to be held on to. And so now I think we feel the tension. Is he the king or is he not the king? Because he's not reigning as a king would reign. Well, Jesus says, let me tell you about the kingdom on earth. So let's look at our two parables for the day. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So this is what I want to do. I want to try to fairly straightforwardly uh, unpack the meaning of these two parables. And then I do want to end with some personal application for you. So let's take the first parable. This first parable... Jesus is going to parallel the kingdom of God with a mustard seed. First question we ought to ask is, why a mustard seed? Well, the mustard seed would have been 
widely known by Jesus' audience. So that's one reason, that Jesus takes something that is known. That's what you do in a parable, known to reveal unknown. So it's known. But secondly, and more importantly, the reason why Jesus picks a mustard seed here is because a mustard seed was small, unimpressive, and seemingly insignificant. So much so that if right now, if I were to say, who wants to bet me $100 that you're not right now sitting on a mustard seed? Right now, $100. I will bet, would you bet me $100 that you're not sitting on a mustard seed right now? She probably wouldn't. And she says no. And the reason why is because you know that a mustard seed is so small that it's very possible that you don't even realize it's there. That's what Jesus was saying. The kingdom of God right now, boys, it's small, it's unimpressive, and it's seemingly insignificant. And I want you to know nobody argued with that. Jesus wouldn't have gotten any. No, it's not. They, he would have got, uh-huh, that's right. Yeah, Jesus, and why is it that way? You're the king. Let's do something about it. I mean, that's kind of, you know, it's like, like nobody argued. They say, yes, we're with you. You're right. Um, please talk further. And here's what Jesus wants them to know. Yes, it is small. Yes, it is unimpressive. Yes, it is insignificant. But he wants them to know it is not going to stay that way. And so the first emphasis of this, the first parable, is Jesus wants us to know that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is going to grow. The first emphasis is the growth of the kingdom. And I want you to see this. There are three things that, that Jesus tells about the growth of the kingdom. The first thing is that the growth of the kingdom of heaven is certain. It's certain. He doesn't say if the mustard seed grows. What does he say? He says it's the smallest of all seeds, but when, when, it's certain, it's going to happen. This isn't a maybe. This is it will happen. The second thing that Jesus wants us to see, and this is one of the most, maybe the most important thing, is that the growth is not only certain, but the growth of the kingdom of heaven is going to be massive. It's going to be massive. And, and, and we might, because we don't, I don't know, maybe you understand mustard seeds and, and how they work, but most of us don't. We might miss this. But, but look what Jesus says. He says that this small seed when it is grown, is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. A mustard seed would typically grow to about seven or eight feet, and it is what we would call a bush or a shrub. But mustard seeds were known to have the potential to grow to as big as 15 feet. And here's what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says that this mustard seed is going to become a tree, he's not actually saying it's actually going to be a tree. He's saying it's going to have the properties of a tree. And the number one property is that birds can live in its branches. We'll come back to the birds, but here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that there's a mustard seed that is going to grow to its fullest potential. And in the same way, the kingdom of heaven right now, which feels so small and unimpressive and insignificant, I want you to know that it will grow to its fullest potential. Well, what is that? Well, the fullest potential of the kingdom of God is that it would grow and it would spread to every single corner and every part of this earth. Every single bit. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's giving a massive claim here, a massive promise that, that it's not going to grow, but it's going to grow to its full potential. It's going to touch the ends of the earth. And if you're the disciples, think about this. And you hear that, that this little, small, ragtag group and, and this, 
this kingdom of God and this Jesus and his reign that feels like it's so fragile and it could be snuffed out at any moment, that it's going to be actually a world shaping in its size, you would say, we'll see it when we, we'll believe it when we see it, right? But you and I, 2,000 years later, we cannot have that same reaction. Our reaction is, wow, we see it. We see it. I want you to think about this for a second. You know, we tend to be so quick to, to look at what God isn't doing and what God hasn't done. But I just want you to think about it for a second. That Jesus promised that this small, unimpressive, insignificant kingdom of heaven would expand to the entire world. And you know what? Today, it, that, that promise isn't ultimately fulfilled, but it's very close. Think about this. Christianity is the world's largest religion. Nearly a third of the world, over two billion people, claim to be followers of Christ. Now, now we know that that number in actuality is lower, that a third of the world isn't a follower of Christ, but what that represents is that represents the fact that the world has heard about this man that has come to save. The world has. The Bible, hands down, most read book in all of history. You know, when I used to hear that stat, I, I, this is how I would respond. I'd be like, well, that's because it got a good start. I mean, back in the day, people were reading it all the time. Not today, people don't read it. Wrong. That's incorrect. They just came out with a study, the most, the, the most read books in the last 50 years. The Bible absolutely dominates and dwarfs any and every other book. I mean, it, it's, it's, I've got a graph. I, sh I should have brought the actual picture Google it. Uh, Google most uh, red books in the last 50 years. And it's, and it's a, a, little, uh, a little bar graph, and it shows a book, a book. Uh, the 10th book, I told the first service, it was a funny book, but I, it's not funny enough because I can't remember it. Uh, but I remember thinking, that's funny. Uh, but the 10th book, and, um, and number four is The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is the fourth most read book in the last 50 years. Number three is Harry Potter. Number two is uh, Confessions of a Chinese uh, Leader. Sorry, I haven't read it. Um, Number one, the Bible. Okay, w what does that say? What does it say that, that, that the kingdom of God, it is stretching out to every single part of this world, that the Bible, the, 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 the book where God is declaring that he is a king and he's come to rescue, that it's the most read book in all the world. I think it's saying this. I think it's saying that if the disciples, if they were to walk around this earth today, and if they were to go to Africa and see what Jesus is doing, and they were to go to Australia, and they were to go to Europe and United States and the islands, I think if they would go there, I think they would be stunned, and I think their lips would quiver, and they would say, the mustard seed, the mustard seed. That's what he said. It's what he said. Jesus promised that the growth is going to be massive, and we are seeing it unfold, and it ought to encourage us. There's one more thing. I want you to see about the kingdom growth, and that is this. The kingdom growth is not only certain, it's not only going to be massive, we are seeing that it is massive, but Jesus is promising that it's going to be a blessing. Look at where I get this. It says that this kingdom that grows to be this tree is uh, the properties of a tree, the size of a tree is such that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The Greek for make nests is 
to make a home, to live there. And here's what it's saying. It's saying that the kingdom of God is going to grow in such fashion that others who are outside of the kingdom of God, okay, the trees the kingdom of God, the birds aren't the kingdom of God, others who are outside of the kingdom of God will draw to it. And the only reason birds will make a home in a tree is because they find provision there and they find protection there. And this is what Jesus is saying. Whoever you think the birds are, and there's debate, and whatever the birds are doing in that tree, there's debate. The point is this, that the kingdom of God is going to grow, that people flock to it because they believe there they can find provision and protection. Warehouse 242. This ought to encourage you. Your vision is you want to be a church for the city. You want to be a church that is a blessing to the city. And Jesus would say to you, well, you're in line with my design for how the kingdom of God is supposed to operate. The kingdom of God is supposed to attract those who believe we could live there, we could exist there, we could be protected there. And that's what Jesus promises. So there's the first parable. Growth will be certain, growth will be massive, and growth will be a blessing. Now let's get into the second parable, and then I want to try to tie it together for you. The second parable is this. It's somewhat similar, but it has a little bit of a different emphasis that is very important. And here it is. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So initially, the similarity would probably jump out to you that Jesus is taking something that is small, unimpressive, and seemingly insignificant, Leaven, I don't know how many bread makers we have in here. Uh, I have some knowledge on bread making, but don't excuse that for experience. I've never done it. Uh, but I do know how it works. You take a little bit of leaven, a little bit of sour fermented dough, as it's called, yeast, a little tiny bit, and we'll explain how you put it into the dough, but it does something. So something very little, Jesus says here, is going to have a massive effect, and we could skip the massive part, but look at this. He hid it in three measures of flour. That is enough to, that, that would make enough bread to feed 100 people. So here's what Jesus is saying. Something very little, and again, the disciples say, uh-huh, yep, that's us. It's going to have a massive result. And so that's the similarity. Now here's the unique emphasis. Um, this, is, this is significant. The unique emphasis here is that in the first parable, Jesus was promising kingdom growth. And in this parable, he's promising kingdom influence. I get influenced by his use of leaven. The connection between leaven and influence is really simple. You, you uh, take a big batch of dough, and you knead it, and you prepare it, and you get it ready. And then you go to a former loaf, and you pinch off a piece, and you take that piece, and you put it inside the middle. You work it in the middle of the dough, and that little piece of leaven or yeast will do its thing, I don't even know the word, uh, agitate, you know, do its thing, and eventually it will influence the entire loaf. So here's what Jesus is promising. The kingdom of God, your influence feels small, insignificant, unimpressive. It's not going to stay that way. The kingdom of God's influence, it is going to do something massive, and he gives two things. Number one, uh, he gives two ways that the influence is going to work. Here's the first one. Influence happens from within. Look at this. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took, and what did she do with it? She hid it. Here's the point there. You don't take yeast and put it, lay it on top of the dough. You don't take dough and just lay it on top of the yeast. 
you take the yeast and you insert it in the middle, into the heart of the dough. And this is what Jesus is saying, that the kingdom of God is going to influence this world not by remaining on the outside, not by looking in and speaking in, but the kingdom of God is going to influence this world by getting within the center and the heart of it. And Jesus is the greatest example of this. John 1.14, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. God didn't desire to rescue and send an email saying, hey, some savings available, anybody interested? You know, God didn't send a message in a cloud. God became a man. He got in the middle of it. Eugene Peterson, that John 1.14 in the message, he translates it like this. It's beautiful. He says that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. I mean, think about that. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. He didn't stay from afar. He moved in. He got in the midst. And God is saying that Jesus did it. And you know what? If you are a follower of Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, we're glad you're here because you're getting a vision for how God wants to use your life to be a part of some massive growth and massive influence. But if you are a follower of Christ, God wants your influence in this world to increase by you getting within the middle of the world, not standing at afar, but actually getting in it. Colossians 1.6, it says this gospel which has come to you. The gospel doesn't stay on the sidelines with the sign that says, anybody interested? The gospel reaches people and they go into the center, the heart of the world, whatever that might mean for you. I don't know, but I think you ought to pray that. I think you ought to say, God, I'm a coach of three YMCA soccer teams. This is me. I, I just yesterday coached three games. Uh, it was a rough day for us. Uh, so coach three games. How, God, would you want me to get in the center of what the YMCA is doing so that the kingdom of God's influence might spread? I don't know what that might look like, but I want to start praying that. In my neighborhood, how do you want me to get the center of what the neighborhood is doing? Because the kingdom of God gets within and grows that way. And here's the second thing. The kingdom of God's influence, it's within. And Jesus also says it's, it's going to be widespread. It's going to be widespread. Look at this. The leaven is hid till it was what? All leavened. All of it. That little bit influenced the whole thing. Here's what I think Jesus is promising. And I feel pretty good about it because we're seeing it happen. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God's influence is going to be widespread. It is going to affect every single facet, um, uh, every facet area of life and culture in the world. And I, 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 would, I would challenge us to think this. Think, try to think of one significant area of life that Jesus and his followers, that the beliefs and values of Christianity haven't made an indelible imprint on. Try to think of one area. Just pick a big area of life like education and just say, how has Christianity made an indelible imprint? A few years ago, uh, a guy, Dr. James Kennedy, wrote a book with a provocative title. It was, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And, and the book was taking a look at, if you take Jesus out, if you take Christianity out, the values and beliefs of Christianity, if you take him out of the world, what are you left with? And he showed how Education isn't the same. Christian beliefs and values pioneered education, schools. He showed that hospitals were pioneered by Christians, that politics were influenced, that human rights, you know, list on and on and on. You know what that says? 
that says that Jesus made a ridiculous promise about the influence of the kingdom of heaven and that it was going to be widespread. And if you were there, you would say, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, you know what? We see it. We see it. It's happening. And, and sometimes we look at what God isn't doing, just like in growth with influence, what he isn't doing, like me. I, I direct a team that works on college campuses. And all the time, before studying this passage, I find myself reading what these colleges, every one of them were founded on. Every one of these colleges were founded on Christian principles and Christian values. And, and then I see the way the colleges run, and I just get irritated. And I'm like, what, how come you're not living in a way that you were first designed? At what point do I stop and say, it's ridiculous that you all were founded on this. It's ridiculous. Jesus, your promise that our influence is going to spread and be widespread is amazing. Look at all these schools that came up and hospitals. I think you get the picture. So if Jesus' followers were to walk around this earth and they were to see how Christian beliefs and values are influencing politics and education and healthcare and human rights and on and on business, I think they would look at each other and they would say, the leaven, the leaven. Where else? 242. This ought to encourage you. You're a church who has a vision that you're about the city, every area and aspect of the city. You want to get in and you want to influence the arts. You want to influence business. You, you name it, you want to influence it. And you know what? Jesus would say, warehouse, you're in line with my design for what you should be about. So let me summarize it, and then let me try to bring some application. Summary is this. Jesus makes a massively ridiculous promise to his disciples and to you and I that this kingdom of God, the growth that appeared so small, unimpressive, insignificant, that he was certain it would be massive and it would be a blessing. And then he promises that their influence, which felt just as small, that it would also be, it would come from within, at the heart, you're going to get in the city, and it would be widespread. And so that, that's the summary. Now, what do we do with that today? I think two things. First thing is this. First thing is I think that you and I, this ought to encourage us that however outrageous the claims of Jesus may sound, they can be trusted. This one, I just don't think we get how outrageous it would have landed. It, they would have been hopeful but they would have been so doubtful. Are you serious, Jesus? We're the mustard seed. We're the leaven. Are you serious, Jesus? And you and I can be encouraged that it's happening. It's not over. The growth is going to continue. Matthew 24, 14, when the gospel of the kingdom is preached to all nations, then the end will come. So there's more growth to happen or we wouldn't be here. And there's more influence to happen. But it is happening and that ought to encourage us. And then lastly, I, I want to I give you a principle. And here's the principle. I want to challenge you to view small in a big way. I'm going to say it again. I want to challenge you to view small in a big way. And here's what I mean. That the kingdom of God began to grow by that which is small, unimpressive, and insignificant. And I want to suggest to you that's how the kingdom of God is continuing to grow through that which is small, unimpressive, and insignificant. And let me press in a little bit. I think you and I, we desire to do the big thing for God, so much so that we don't take seriously 
the small, unimpressive, insignificant steps toward God. I think you and I, we, we, we get excited about doing that great thing, but we neglect the small things. And when we do that, we put ourselves in opposition with, with the way the kingdom of God works in this world. Here's what I'm talking about. Let me flesh it out. I'm talking about five minutes in the morning. We want to know God. We say, God, I want to know you in a, in a way that I would lay my life down for you. But yet, we don't take seriously the five minutes. I mean five minutes that you and I have in the morning to read a verse and to, to study the Word of God. You and I, we, we, we say things like, I just really wish I had a Bible verse for this time. But yet there's not one, just one in our pocket that we're looking at right now. The way you come to know, I don't know, am I just a genius? The way you come to know a lot of the Bible is by starting to know some of the Bible. You know, we want to know it. I just wish I knew the Bible. Like, Maddie, I just wish I knew so many verses as you. I want to say, I kind of eat them one at a time, too. You know, just one at a time. One at a time. We want to, to feel like God's leading us in that. We say, God's with me. God's guiding me. But yet, for some reason, we're so sluggish of heart that we won't take three minutes in our car before we step in and go to the office to say, God, this day is yours. I'm committing it to you. Would you do what you promised to do and is make me a light and guide me? We, we don't do the small, insignificant thing. We want to have influence in our neighborhood, but we haven't even met our neighbors. Like, I'm not saying go buy megaphones and everybody preach in your neighborhood today. I'm saying go buy a loaf of bread and just go introduce yourself. That's where it begins. We want to be the person that funds big works, big charitable or kingdom works, but yet we're not generous with the little we have. When we disregard that which is small, we put ourselves in opposition with the way the kingdom of God works. Let me give you one example. One example. And by the way, uh, I didn't mention this in the first service. It's a whole other sermon, and it's so good. But the flip side is also true. We want to avoid the great evils, the great sins, but we disregard the small, unimpressive, insignificant steps away from the Lord. And just like Jesus' kingdom works that you arrive at big through small, well, Satan's works that he lures you to the big through the small. Oh, that's another whole message. But here's an example. We want to defeat the Goliaths in our life, but we don't realize that what brought David to the battlefield was that he carried a lunchbox to his brothers. Do you know that story? Like, like in, in, if you go into uh, Lifeway Christian, you can buy a DVD for my kids that's David and the Slingshot, you know, or David defeats Goliath. There is not a DVD, David and the Lunchbox. You won't find it. And that's a real problem because people want to defeat Goliath, but they don't want to carry the Lunchbox. Carrying lunch to his brothers is what brought David to the battlefield. He didn't wake up and say, today, I'm slaying a giant, baby. I feel it, you know. No, he walked up and he said, I guess I'm going to get stinky with sheep again. And his dad came and said, will you take lunch to your brothers? And it got worse. He said, and will you take this cheese 
to the commander. I mean, think about it. Like, not only am I carrying lunch for my brothers because I'm too young and too small to be at the battlefield. Here's your lunch, guys. And where's the captain? I have a plate of cheese for him. I mean, how, you know, that's like, is that, is that how giants, giant killers go about? Well, here's the deal. I, I really think, because I'm serious, I think you and I, I wonder how many times we've said no to opportunities to carry the lunchbox because we had our eyes set on slaying the giant. And you and I don't realize that you get the slingshot when you deliver the lunchbox. That's the way the kingdom works. The slingshot is on the end of the lunchbox delivery. What's my point? My point is this, that the kingdom of God, it did begin and grow through that which is small and insignificant. It continues to grow through that which is small and insignificant. And here's how I'll summarize it. The kingdom of God grows through humble activities. And the kingdom of God grows through humble men and humble women who, have, who view small in a big way. And this, this ends me where, where we should end, which is with Jesus. Jesus was the example of humility. Jesus viewed small in a big way. If he didn't, you and I wouldn't have been here. We wouldn't be here. Jesus was the seed who has bore the kingdom tree. And the reason why is because Jesus did what every seed must do if you're going to produce fruit, and that is he fell to the ground and he died so that you and I could live. And Jesus, he is the true yeast who came to the heart of the world, in the center of the world, who got within the middle of the world, and the yeast, his body was broken so that you and I might hear about the offer to eat the bread of life. Jesus viewed small in a big way. And I'll just end with this charge. I, I don't know you, but I know you. And I know that the kingdom of God feels very small and very insignificant and unimpressive in your life. And I know it feels unimpressive in your family and in your marriage and in your small group and in your city. And I just want to encourage you. That's the way it starts. View small in a big way and commit to daily, seemingly insignificant steps toward the Lord and you will be blown away at how he fulfills his promises. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these parables of promise. We resonate, Father, I resonate with the disciples and the tension in their hearts. Are you really the king with so much rejection and opposition? Are you the king? And we thank you that you have spoken these parables, that we would see that the promise is that the kingdom grows the kingdom expands in its influence. Father, I pray that we would align ourselves with the way that happens, that it happens through the small. I pray, God, that we would be a people and our lives would be marked not by dreaming for the giants, but by willing to carry lunchboxes, serving one another, reading your word, memorizing scripture, taking moments to pray, Father, would we glorify you and would we allow you to do great things through that which seems unimpressive. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to move to the part of the service where we get to respond.
The word is a time where we receive, and now we respond through the giving of, of the offering and through worship. That, that, was, that had to be the nicest way that somebody's ever told me it wasn't my best talk. Um, all right, I'm just saying. Uh, receive the benediction. May the grace of God that is available to you through Jesus, may it grow and influence your heart that you would view small in a big way. Amen.